Okay, we'll have two readings today. Uh, they both follow on virtually from each other. Uh, we'll start off with uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 20, and then we'll go from chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. So chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. And we'll start from chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbour as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. We've seen in the letter to the Galatians that Paul's telling them to listen to him and not to listen to some Jewish false Christians who are say, saying that they need to add law to their faith. We've seen in this letter that becoming right with God happens only by faith in Jesus. 
and staying right with God also happens only by faith in Jesus. We don't start by grace, we saw last week, and then continue on by human effort. But a couple of really big questions still remain. Yes, they're sons. Yes, they're 100% right with God through faith in Jesus. But how do they show that they're right with God? What marks them out as belonging to Him? Two weeks ago, we asked, why would people even be telling the Galatians that they needed to get circumcised anyway? And the answer was because that's what marked out God's people as belonging to Him in the Old Testament. But what marks out Christians now? And there's actually a related question to this as well. What marks out how a Christian is to live now? It's a bit of a problem, isn't it? If I ask you what marks out any of the world's religions, I bet something comes to mind pretty quickly. Like if I said headscarves, not drinking alcohol, not eating pork, having a beard, praying five times a day facing Mecca, who have I marked out? Well, a Muslim. And we could go on for Sikhs, for Hindus and for Buddhists. Now, am I just stereotyping people by doing that, you know, putting people in boxes? Well, I'm not actually, because what I'm doing is describing what their own religions say mark them out as belonging, belonging to that religion. But what about for us Christians? What marks us out as belonging? Some people would think that they have the answer to this question. They'd say things like special buildings or special religious ceremonies or maybe wearing cross jewellery or Christian jumpers, saying praise God and hallelujah at random points in the conversation. But actually none of that marks us out as a Christian. And if you look around us here today, there's not really any of that, praise God, hallelujah. <laughs> Do you know what the Romans called Christians? They called them atheists because they couldn't see anything that marked them out. They looked godless. They didn't have any images of a God. They met in a lounge room. They didn't wear anything special. They didn't have any special practices, except maybe Lord's Supper and baptism. But if you understand those rightly, of course, you'll see that they are both about faith in Christ crucified. In a world where it was clear what religion you belonged to, the Galatians, they were probably feeling pretty uneasy, wondering what marks us out as belonging to God. And related to this question of belonging is this question of behaving. What marks out how they are to behave as those who belong? What governs their behavior? They might have been saved from the consequences of sin, but what guides them to be able to overcome the presence of sin in their lives? Now to this problem come some people with an answer. And the answer is the law. The law would give them the marks of belonging. There'd be circumcision, there'd be special food requirements, there'd be special days. And on top of this, not only would the law show that they belong, but it would also show them how to behave with lots of practical rules and illustrations and details of how their lives could be governed. Well, Paul speaks about this wonderful answer to their problem. And look at what he says in 5 verse 1. 
It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. They want a yoke, something that will tie them in. But Paul says the law is not just a yoke, it's a yoke of slavery. They want a yoke that will tie them in and help them stay on the path of righteousness. And Paul says this is a yoke of slavery. And Christ has set them free from this yoke and and every yoke. And the reason he set them free in verse 1 is for freedom. Freedom's not a byproduct. Freedom was not an accidental coincidence. Our freedom was Christ's purpose. And so they're to stand firm for this freedom. They're to be freedom fighters just like Paul was. As we've seen over the weeks, looking to the law is giving up freedom. And Paul's been very clear on this. And here in 5.2, he's at his absolute clearest. He says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. (laughs) But just taking a step back on this, if this is true, Christ is of no value to them if they get circumcised. Why does Paul circumcise Timothy? Have a look at Acts 16, verse 1, which says, He came to Derb and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. What is Paul doing here? Is this hypocrisy? And would you believe it? Paul's actually on a journey delivering a message from the Jerusalem apostles that the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. So why on earth is he circumcising Timothy? Well, we see the answer back in Galatians in verse 4. Paul says, You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. Timothy getting circumcised has got nothing to do with trying to be right with God. He does it for the sake of the Jews who lived in the area, not because he's afraid of them, not because he's giving in to them, but in order to have a chance to win them. Timothy's Jewish. This is him being all things for all people that he might win some. Timothy gets circumcised just so he'll get a chance to speak the gospel and be heard. In verse 6, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. And Paul really means this. Circumcision really is a neutral thing. It has no power. And neither does uncircumcision. Uncircumcision is also a neutral thing. It has no power either. You have the freedom to get circumcised if you want to. But as soon as you do it, because you think that it has some power to mark you out as belonging to God, then you're alienating yourself from Christ and falling away from from grace. So what does mark us out as belonging to Christ? In one sense, our marker 
is having no marker. What distinguishes Christians is grace, not human activity or paraphernalia of any sort. We ourselves have got nothing to show except Christ and Him crucified. It's actually when Christians try to have something to show that they end up in all sorts of trouble. They end up in religion. The end of verse 6 shows the mark of those who belong to God. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith in Jesus, faith in Christ crucified is the only thing that marks us out as belonging to God. But if faith is the thing that marks us out as belonging, what is it that marks out how we are to behave as those who belong? What governs our behavior? Or to put it another way, what has the power to overcome sin in our lives? Look at verse 5. Rather than add the law and fall from grace, we read what we're to do. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. This is a bit confusing because we're already righteous. We've seen that now in Jesus. We're justified, declared righteous. But we read here that we're still waiting for righteousness. Now this makes sense if you think about it. We're clothed in Christ, we read last week. So we're clothed in His righteousness. Yet right now, we don't fully live in righteousness. Paul said in chapter 1, we live in the present evil age. We're waiting for Jesus to come back and fully eradicate sin and, and fully bring righteousness. And that's our, our rock solid hope, our sure hope that can't be shaken, that through faith in Jesus we'll be a part of a world where there's only righteousness and not sin. And what that means, of course, is that there'll be no death, no sadness, and no sickness. But did you notice what it looks like to wait? Verse 5, life now is through the Spirit. Life now, waiting, is by faith. Waiting for Jesus is all about living a life of faith governed by the Holy Spirit. In other words, be belonging and behaving go together. We belong by faith in Jesus and we behave as those who belong by faith in Jesus. Faith has the power not to just mark us out as belonging, but to govern us as well. Because those who have faith have the Holy Spirit. Circumcision or uncircumcision has no power to overcome sin. But we see what does in verse 6. That's not verse 6. The only thing that counts, Paul says, is faith expressing itself through love. And just before we think through a bit more how that works, we're going to come back to that in just a second. If we're going to do this passage justice, we need to pause and just make sure we've seen how important it is for us to not mess with other people's faith. Look at verse 10. 
the one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Paul feels very passionately about this. It's a very serious thing to mess with people's faith. And then that verse that stands out, verse 12, as for those agitators, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Now, this is biting sarcasm. You know, they want to cut off a little bit. Paul says, I wish you'd cut it all off. It's not very polite, is it? (laughs) But those who are pushing circumcision, they are pushing people away from grace. They're pushing people away from Jesus. It's a serious crime with eternal ramifications. So no, Paul's not very polite. He says these people will be judged by God. But what about us? Are we messing about with people's salvation? Now, again, as we've seen over the weeks, we're probably not adding in circumcision. In fact, we may well not be adding in anything at all, but we can still be pushing people away from Jesus. Are we claiming to know God, but actually turning people away by our hypocrisy? Now, I'm not talking about us being perfect as Christians. See, true Christians aren't hypocrites because they don't claim to be completely good. They know that they make mistakes and plenty of them. And so they're humble and they're ready to say sorry as often as it's needed. The kind of hypocrisy that I'm talking about is when someone claims to be Christian, but they're not humble and they use their power to abuse people, emotional or mental abuse of people could turn people away from Jesus, undermine their faith in Jesus, couldn't it? Physical or sexual abuse of people in our care could push them away from faith in Jesus. See, if I claim to know God, if I claim to follow Jesus, but then crush people, I can crush their faith easily and push them away from Jesus. Now, the frustrating thing is that when you're describing people who do this, they often can't hear you because they're protected by layers. But if you can hear me, then you need to know that that's a very serious thing and that God will judge you for it. You're messing with God. If you're someone who's been mistreated in the past or is being mistreated like this now, then know that God takes this incredibly serious, seriously. He's not their God. They don't speak for him. He's not like them. He's a God of grace and love. Keep your faith in Jesus, but don't keep silent. Talk to me or to someone else about it. Well, back to the big question that still remains in our passage. What has the power to deal with sin? Not just its consequences, but its presence in our lives. What governs our lives now while we live in this present evil age, waiting for righteousness to come? Well, the answer is still faith in Jesus. Have a look at Galatians 3.26. Paul said, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children or sons of God through faith. And then in Galatians 4.6, Because you are his sons... God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And Galatians 5.16, 
So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh or the sinful nature. By faith, the Holy Spirit governs our lives. Now, we could easily misunderstand what this means. And next week, Peter Lockery is actually going to be speaking on what it looks like to be led by the Spirit. But let me say just a couple of things today. What it doesn't look like is us being robots. We have a a real role to play in how we live. But it's a role that involves us being led by the Spirit. As we'll see next week, the way Paul says the Holy Spirit leads us is not something mystical. It's not by visions or voices that he's talking about here. He's saying the Holy Spirit leads us to express our faith through love, which means fighting against the sinful nature and actively walking down the way of love. Now, we actually get a taste of this this week in verse 13. Where Paul says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. We're free from the law, free from the consequences of sin. We're sons and heirs, and through faith this can't be shaken. We're free, we've seen, from needing to add anything more. But what do we do with our freedom? Well, there are theoretically three options. We saw them in the, in the kids' spot. First, we could go back under the yoke of the law or some other yoke. And what this means is that we don't really have freedom. Our faith is actually not in Christ. Second, we could use our freedom as an opportunity to indulge our sinful nature. And what this means is we don't really have freedom either. We're slaves to sin. Our faith is actually not real. We're just kidding ourselves. Or finally, we could use our freedom to serve one another in love. And this is what God calls true freedom. In our culture, we we love the idea of freedom. The sexual revolution, feminism, same-sex marriage, they've all been part of a bigger theme of freedom. Now, not all of this theme in our culture has been terrible. There have been some really good aspects to it. But fundamentally, there's a problem when we misunderstand what true freedom is. In the, in the world's eyes, freedom is, is doing what you want to do. It's having no constraints, no boundaries. It's be what you want to be, do what you want to do. Or I heard this fairly ordinary folk song pop up on Spotify the other day that said, and if you want to be free, be free. And if you want to be me, be me. And if you want to be you, be you. Does anyone actually know who sang, sang that? No, okay. It was Cat Stevens. I had to look it up. But the idea is that you determine your destiny. If you want to be male, be male. If you want to be female, be female. If you want to be bisexual, go for it. As long as you're not hurting others, according to how you define hurting others. It's your right to be free to do what you want. But the problem is, freedom doesn't work that way. Because we're not the determiners of what hurts people. 
And we're not the determiners of the parameters that we live within. Let me explain. What's freedom for a fish? Freedom's not a goldfish bowl. Freedom is to live in the ocean, to be free to swim and flash and dart wherever you want, in any direction it wants. And as long as it's within its arena, the ocean, its parameters, it's free. If a fish decides it wants to do what it wants to do and and be what it wants to be by sunbaking on the beach, you could hardly call that freedom. And anyone walking by a fish in the hot sun is not going to celebrate that kind of freedom. A fish is free when it's in the arena it's created for. And humanity's the same. Freedom is to live in our arena. And our arena is not determined by us. It's determined by God. And he says our arena is what? It's faith expressing itself through love. That's what Adam and Eve were created for. And through Jesus, that's what we're called to, to, to. And through the Spirit, it's what we're enabled to do. The Holy Spirit clothes us in Christ and He guides us to live as those who are clothed in Christ. He creates faith in us. He illuminates our minds to see Christ. He transforms our minds to understand what God wants from us And he changes our hearts to want what God wants. You don't need the law to love. You don't need a long list of rules. You need the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. The law was always about love. So we can get to the very heart of the law. We can fulfill and even exceed the law if we live by love. Now, is this any different to anyone in the world? How's this, you know, different to the hippie who just says, just love people, man? The difference is we love as an expression of faith which means we don't determine what's loving. We look to God for that. But not by simply reading off the law or reading off a a long list of rules, but by reading and understanding God's voice and character in Scripture in its entirety. Now, I think Christians generally find this hard to accept. I think in some ways we're like the Galatians. We want hard and fast rules. We want to know at any given point exactly what's the right or wrong thing to do in every scenario. In other words, we want a yoke to guide us. But life's not like that. God hasn't made us to be mindless kind of factory workers following a schematic diagram. There are times when it's hard to know what the loving thing to do is. Life's grey sometimes. You know, as a parent... Often you don't know whether the right thing to do is to punish your child and send them to their room or to give them a hug. But most of the time, it's fairly easy to know what love looks like. The real challenge is to allow the Spirit to lead us down that way, to fully embrace that action. And in the difficult situations, when we find it hard to know what the loving thing to do is, what should we do? Well, we pray, 
we look in Scripture, we ask others. But then in the end, though we might not hold absolute confidence in our action, we act boldly, having absolute confidence that Christ holds us in His hands no matter what. We've been set free for freedom. Now it's like, let me just finish and humor me a little bit here with this illustration. It's like we're ugly caterpillars, right? Now, I know I'm making a habit of insulting us. Last week it was we're Nazi German soldiers or something like that. But imagine you're a caterpillar. The law is like the cocoon. It locks you up. It holds you until Christ comes along and breaks the cocoon apart and transforms you into a butterfly. And so there you are, sitting on a branch as a beautiful butterfly. What should you do next? Well, Galatians says, don't crawl back into the cocoon. But it also says, don't just sit there. I mean, don't act like a caterpillar either. What should you do? Beat your wings. Don't just sit there looking pretty. Fly. Fly like butterflies do, like maniacs. Be who you are. Christ has set us free, we read. So listen to the Holy Spirit. He's saying, beat your wings, fly, put your faith into effect. How? Through love that serves other people. That's our sky. That's our arena. That's our freedom. And maybe if you're a man, the kind of butterfly thing is not such a good metaphor. You're a jet, okay? Don't spend your time taxiing around on the runway. Get up there. Fly. Serve other people through love. Now this week, I want to finish by asking, do we have the desire to express our faith? Do we want to beat our wings? Or are we actually just happy sitting around looking pretty? Next week, we'll look at some of the particulars of love. But if you don't have the desire to love, the desire to express your faith in Jesus, you need to wrestle with that for a bit longer. You need to fix your eyes on Christ crucified and to ask the Holy Spirit to help you take the gospel into your mind and heart. You need to ponder Jesus' love, his sacrifice, his purpose and his plan for your life a little longer. Being a son means being a servant. And of course, this shouldn't be surprising to us, should it? Because Jesus is God the Son, and yet Jesus is the greatest servant of all. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through Jesus you have set us free, and you've set us free because you want us to live out our freedom to be who you've made us to be and to do what you've made us to do, what's truly good for us and what's truly good for the world. Lord, forgive us when we fail to be who you've made us to be. Lord, pour your spirit into our minds and hearts and lives. Cause us to listen to his voice, to understand what you want from us and to desire what you want from us more and more. Lord, help us to celebrate living your way, humbly serving other people. Lord, 
we ask that you would mark us out by this faith in you that changes the way we live. And we pray this in Jesus' name and in his name alone. Amen.